Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Doug Ford joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus of Radio, uh, Chorus Radio Network, running for mayor in 2018. We found that out yesterday. Doug, got to have you with us, and I guess the fundamental question everybody's asking you is why? Well, Roy, first of all, it's great to be, be on with you and uh, why people are frustrated. People are frustrated uh, with a provincial government, federal government, and specifically in Toronto, they're frustrated with uh, John Tory and, and the increased taxes. He's uh, uh, taxing everything from, he wants to tax road tolls, he's, he's proposing a roof tax, meaning uh, as much, the larger the roof, the more rain that comes off, he's going to tax you based on, on that, and uh, just a continuous uh, broken promises. It's uh, frustrating. People uh, elect uh, politicians to go in there and do what they say they're going to do uh, based on based on their election promises. He said he was going to not do tolls. He's trying to get tolls in. He said he was going to get the traffic moving. Everyone knows uh, Toronto has the worst traffic in North America. It's come to gridlock, and uh, people are just frustrated with the, the broken promises. He said he's going to keep taxes low. They've gone skyrocketing. And sole source deals are happening throughout the city again. So, so we should call we should call Mr. Tory now and engage you guys in a debate. I'd love to. I'll, I'll debate him on any corner, any show, any, anywhere you want because he has done absolutely nothing. I call him the do nothing mayor, and I just ask you, Roy, and I, I just ask some other folks, what has he done? And everyone gives you the blank stare. They they can't answer. Uh, ask what we we did. We saved hundreds of millions of dollars. I'm going to be asking our listeners and our callers, Doug. After I finish speaking with you, how they feel about you mm-hmm. uh, running for mayor of Toronto, and it'll be interesting to hear what what they have to say. Now, was it a long time in coming? Did you think about it for a fairly long period of time before you made the decision to run, or had you made the decision some time ago? No, I thought about it, Roy. But what what uh, people don't realize when things are, are broken and they can't get any uh, answers from any level of government, they call the Fords. I get anywhere from fifteen to twenty constituent calls. Uh, every single day, no matter if it's a federal, provincial, or municipal election, and I, I do my best to help people out and direct them in the right right direction. Right now, they aren't getting answers, and uh, they're they're frustrated. What are you planning on? What's what's the most important? I, I I know it's going to be stop the gravy train or something like that, right? I mean, you want to cut the expenses in the city of Toronto. That's right. Yeah, so 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 what 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 is the most fundamental issue that you want to approach right out of the gate? If you're the mayor, what's the first thing you do? Well, first thing, uh, the, the couple thousand people that John Tory hired, we're going to have to review. He just hired someone for uh, to take care of the homeless uh, uh, folks. Meanwhile, we have about eight people doing that, plus committees, plus chair people, and uh, paying this person 175000 plus, 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 equals over 200000 and they have to work 35 hours a week. Just imagine how the homeless people feel, not mentioning the taxpayers. So he's, he's increased spending a billion dollars a year, and I know some people can't comprehend the the billion, I'll, I'll break it down to a thousand dollars a household. Uh, he is paying. He's spending more. And I'm, I'm a strong believer, Roy. Okay. And I know you are, and your listeners, that you're smarter. We're smarter than the government. I want to talk so, about Doug Ford. Yeah. So you know the media are going to be paying very close attention. It's already begun. Sure. I've seen yeah. stories. I've seen them online. I've seen them various places. Some are more objective than others. You ready for that? Sure, I am. We're, we're used to it. You know, the, the Tories had a, a free ride with the media, untouched, unscathed. Uh, everyone's singing Kumbaya down at City Hall, which is dangerous as anything for the taxpayer. And he still hasn't been able to get anything done. Nothing. It's just uh, the only thing he's gotten done is he's jacked up all the, the taxes. Do you have any warnings for anybody in media, Doug? Areas not to go? Things not to pursue? No, no I'm, I'm not worried about that. You know, I, I hope there, there's always going to be... Uh, the media sharpening their, their knives. They're, they're already have the grinder out sharpening knives, but some media are very fair. And uh, I just want a fair and balanced uh, race, and we'll, we'll do our best. And at the end of the day, Roy, it's going to be the people that decide. Yeah, that's the what people the constituents are deserve. Than the media. <laughs> people are much smarter than the media. They see right through the media. Well, you know, we saw what happened in the United States last November, and I'm not drawing a parallel between you and Donald Trump, but the message is not all that dissimilar. Stop the gravy train or drain the swamp. Are you, um, again, I'm not drawing a parallel between you and Donald Trump, but do you think that you have the same kind of fundamental appeal to people who feel absolutely frustrated with what's happening in their personal and professional lives? 
Well, we've been doing this for 30 years, so people in Toronto and across the country know what our family stands for. And uh, what, what they're frustrated, they, they elect a politician, no matter what party, based on what they say, uh, hoping they're going to do it, and they don't do it. And they're, they're just tired. And I'll, I'll give you an example, Roy, in, in Ontario and Toronto. Uh, people can't even afford to live in, in Toronto, be it a senior or a millennial can't buy a, a home. But every time they stick their hand in their pocket, they got Kathleen Wynne in there with the outrageous uh, hydro bills, and they stick their hand in their other pocket, and you got John Tory hiking taxes. Or Mr. So, Trudeau. Or Mr. Trudeau. He, he's just as bad, but it's... Uh, it's frustrating, to say the least. So how would you, if you're the mayor of Toronto and you know what you want to do, you know what you want to get done, you also know the limitations that the job brings along with it. Mm-hmm. If you're looking at who's in power provincially and federally now, how would you assess Trudeau and when, and how would you deal with them? Well, first of all, I don't think uh, Kathleen Wynne, by the time, if I'm fortunate enough to be elected in, in October, uh, hopefully Patrick Brown and the PC party will be elected uh, in June when the election comes up. I, I've door knocked uh all around Ontario for the PC party, and I've knocked on doors, people we know, and say, hey, I've been a lifelong liberal, but I am not voting for Kathleen when they've had it. They open up their, their hydro bills, and it's, it's yeah. the same size of their mortgage. Yeah, so, no, it's awful. You know, they're just being, they're being gouged by the government. There's, uh, there's just frustration throughout. Uh, so how would you deal with the guy in the corner office of the prime minister's office, Mr. Trudeau? Well, Mr. Trudeau, you know... You'd be the mayor, so you'd, be the, you'd be the chief magistrate of the largest municipality in the country. Well, he has to be uh, accountable to the people of Toronto. Uh, keep in mind, they won every single seat in Toronto, and uh, people uh, are finally realizing, wow, you know, I still haven't found anyone that has voted, him, voted for him, but uh, he does have constituents in Toronto. He has 22 seats, or, or not quite 22 seats, but... He has quite a few seats in Toronto, and uh, we're the largest city in, in the country. So I, I would uh, definitely sit down and make sure that he uh, puts his fair share of infrastructure money in. And uh, that's what we need. We need uh, underground rapid transit in Toronto. We're the uh, third or fourth largest city in North America. We're larger than Chicago. But uh, we still have these streetcars uh, going down the middle of the road. We should be building rapid underground transit. We should be widening the roads. There's, there's a war on the car in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And they're putting main, uh, they're taking the, the main arterial roads, be it Bloor Street or Young Street, taking out lanes of traffic when 85% of the people drive, and, and they're putting bike lanes down. I'm not against bike lanes. Put them in the south, east, west, north of uh, the main arterial road. But don't put it down Bloor Street and Young Street. It's uh, the craziest thing I've ever heard. Doug, there's a lot of controversy about the issue of immigration, and particularly people who are illegally entering the country and claiming refugee status. Toronto is a sanctuary city. Well, that's a slap in the face to all the legal uh, immigrants that have come in, and we have massive support in, in the ethnic community. I, I speak to these folks that are frustrated that they've had a cousin or an uncle or brother or sister that have been waiting in line for years, and all of a sudden they see a group of people, uh, you know, jumping the line. It's, it's like standing in a line for an event, and someone jumps that line, you know, it turns into a riot. So let, let's uh, make sure that we have the proper uh, uh, process coming in. I think this country is great because we accept so many people, and I encourage that, but let's do it through a proper process. Would you try to change the sanctuary city status of Toronto? Well, everyone's welcome. That's more up to the federal government to make sure that they vet the people properly. No, but the the sanctuary city status is what Mr. Tory and the council voted for, and that gives uh, non-documented or illegal people in the, in the city of Toronto rights to uh, Toronto um, services, and the objective is to not have police or authorities necessarily assist with immigration officials who are looking for an individual who's in the country illegally. Well, any, anyone, uh, you, you said the magical word, it's illegal. Yeah. Uh, you've done something illegal, the police, uh, the police have to deal with it. You go in and steal something from, the, from a store and you're walking out, that's illegal. You can't just ignore it and turn your back. So I, I think, first of all, we have to take care of the people that we have here from all over the world. I encourage immigration. I encourage people coming here and starting a, a new life and getting involved in the community and paying their taxes and being part of the community. But if you break the law, then uh, you have to pay the consequences. Of so you're all set. You're ready for this. And the campaign starts in May, is it? Yeah, the campaign starts right now. Starts right now, of course. Of course. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Where have I been for the last 10 minutes? (laughs) (laughs) But, Roy, you're right. It officially uh, starts.
starts in May, and and uh, we're we're ready to go. People, I've I've never never had uh, a reaction like this in, in 30 years of being in politics. All right, we're uh, ready to go. Doug, thanks for the time. I appreciate it. Thanks, and I just got to mention, Roy, uh, social media. Uh, go to at Ford Nation if you you're part of uh, social media, or go to our website, FordNation.ca. All right, thanks, Doug. Okay. All the best. We'll talk again. Doug Ford, running for the leadership, uh, announcing he will. The campaign officially begins, I think it is in May, but as he said, it's obviously already begun. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. As a story that's been making uh, the rounds, it's getting a lot of attention, and it has to do with a waitress at an Eastside Mario's in Timmins, Ontario. And the waitress, her name is Jean-Vierre Loisel, says that uh, a manager told her, a female manager told her, uh, just before her shift a few days ago, that she needed to wear a bra, and it was part of the uh, part of the company's policy, the dress code. And uh, Ms. Loisel says that's sexism. And uh, she told the CBC she was really just looking right at my breasts and said, well, Jen, I can clearly see that you're not wearing a bra and that you have nipple piercings. And um, as Loisel, when she tried to debate this with the manager, um, was just shut down. So she's arguing that it's sexism. And uh, the company's investigating. Now, what exactly is likely to happen here? Because you have the company involved, you have the, the complaint by the, the wait staff or the person on the wait staff, and you have the manager or one of the managers involved. Lior Samfiru joins me. He is an employment law specialist, partner at Samfiru Jamarkin, LLP in Toronto, one of the very best employment law specialists in this country. Lior, thank you for the time. Uh, is this story, because it has three moving parts, it appears, the company, the manager, and the complainant, is this more complicated because of that or not? Well, it is potentially more complicated, Roy, and, and thank you for having me on in the sense that to the extent that what the uh, manager was purporting to do here was discriminatory, it was, it was gender-based discrimination, the question would always become, is the company as a whole liable for the acts of a manager? In most of these cases, uh, our, our courts, our human rights tribunals, have found this concept of vicarious liability, the idea being that, yes, an employer is responsible for the acts, the omissions, the negligence uh, of its employees. So potentially, yes, there is an issue here uh, as relates to, to Eastside Mario's uh, company itself, even though it was the act of a manager. And, uh, Roy, we see these issues come up usually often in the context of uh, em- employers, usually restaurants, requiring women or asking women to wear uh, revealing clothing, such as short skirts, uh, short tops. Right. And our, our human rights tribunals have said, well, that's unacceptable. That uh, reinforces gender stereotypes, and that's wrong, and we're not going to allow that. This is different. This is a bit different in the sense that uh, this is not something that presumably uh, may be demeaning, but it's certainly a, a woman's choice to wear or not to wear a bra. But the, uh, the analysis would be the same in the sense that for, for them to be able to, uh, to stand behind a requirement like that, they would have to show that there is a bona fide requirement, that the job requires her to wear a bra, and that there's really no way she could do the job properly without it. It seems to me that may be a struggle here. So now the manager says that some customers complained as well. If customers do complain about the appearance of someone who works uh, dealing with the public, regardless of what the business enterprise is. Uh, I, for example, I don't like to see, it's just a personal thing, I I would prefer not to see a whole bunch of metal sticking out of people's faces while I'm dealing with them. It's just a a personal thing. So I might say something to to a manager. I might not. Probably not, but I might. Uh, Does the customer saying something like, I don't think this is entirely appropriate and not at not in keeping with the kind of image that your company is trying to put forward. I'm not talking about the bra here, Lior. I'm speaking in general terms. Does the customer's perspective matter at all or not? It, it would matter. It certainly would form part of the analysis because if you're someone that's in the customer service business, your job is to make sure that the customers of the establishment are happy, that they, they, they leave there satisfied so that they come back. 
Well, is, is there something that you're doing that would prevent you from doing that, from achieving that goal, and something that's, let's say, easily rectifiable? Then that would form part of the analysis. Arguably, if, if it's objectively offensive somehow, then it would be uh, an occupational requirement that you fix that issue. Again, I, 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 I don't know that one would be able to establish that uh, a woman wearing a shirt not having a bra under the shirt may be offensive objectively. So I understand some may complain. That said, I, I, I don't know that ultimately this type of, of uh, a gender-based uh, dress code would ultimately withstand scrutiny. Uh, I, I think that it would be very difficult to show that she can't do her job properly because she's not wearing a bra. Yeah, does, does, it, matter, does it matter if, that it's an undergarment? Uh, well, it, it probably does uh, in the sense that, first of all, it's, it's a gender-based undergarment, of course, but the fact that it's an undergarment uh, I think probably suggests that it's not, it wouldn't be a big issue uh, for one to wear one. So I think the, the easier it is to rectify the, the issue, the more inclined a human rights tribunal would be to say, well, you have to do it. We're not asking you to, to go cut your hair. We're not asking you to uh, do anything outrageous here. But again, I, I, generally speaking, our tri- human rights tribunals have shied away from allowing gender-specific dress codes unless they could show, well, it has to be that way for the job to happen, uh, and I, I don't know that this is uh, this is not that type of case. Okay, so now your your professional view of how this is going to turn out would be would be what? Well, I think that uh, I don't think this is actually going to be pursued by way of, of formal uh, proceedings before the uh, the human rights tribunal. I think that uh, certainly in light of this now getting uh, media attention. There will be an apology issued to this uh, to this waitress, and she will be allowed to to dress as she deems appropriate. I do not see Side Mario's uh, insisting on the undergarment on the bra. Uh, that said, if she, this lady was inclined to pursue this, I could see her being successful, uh, which may mean that she would get some some damages. It wouldn't be anything substantial, but potentially it would be some compensation for putting her in a situation where she felt compelled to to wear a bra in this situation. I don't think it's going to go that way, Rowan. Okay. One more question, Lior. Is there a broader message being sent to employers by this particular story? Well, certainly it's the fact that uh, you have to really take a good, hard look at your practices. And uh, employers don't necessarily uh, mean to discriminate. Oftentimes, it's not a situation where an employer seeks out to, to treat people differently. But oftentimes, rules that are, pl- that are being applied across the board may have a negative impact or a more pronounced impact on one group over the other. So I think the idea is always for employers when it comes to human rights, when it comes to discrimination, is take a look at your practices. Make sure that you're not uh, imposing requirements that are unfair and unrelated to the job on one group versus another. Uh, and if you do that, usually you'll, stand, you, you'll end up on the right side of the law. Okay, I do have one more, uh, of course, like that old Columbo television series. I always have one more question. <laughs> J- just share with us, because uh, w- you have a fascinating uh, tool that's available on your on your website, and it's the severance calculator. Tell us what that's about. Well, thank you, Roy. It's a tool that we created because there were so many misconceptions out there with respect to how much someone is owed, what kind of entitlement does a person have if they lose their job, including uh, some incorrect information on various government websites. So I created a tool online that allows anyone to find out how much their compensation, how much severance they're owed if they lost their job. It's free and it's anonymous, and it's available on severancepaycalculator.com. And I encourage people that are, are find themselves in the unfortunate situation of losing their job uh, to check it out. SeverancePayCalculator.com. That's the address. Lior, thank you so much. Good talking to you. Always a pleasure, Roy. Lior Samfiru is a partner at Samfiru Tamarkin LLP in Toronto. And that address again, that email address for the Severance Pay Calculator, calculator SeverancePayCalculator.com. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Hurricane Irma is making its way toward Florida. 155-mile-an-hour winds, gusts to 190. I can't even imagine. Can't even imagine. Think of the worst storm you've been in, the worst winter storm you've been in as far as wind is concerned. We get a lot of that in the winter in Canada. And then multiply that. Two, three, four, five. Hundred times, maybe. Scary.
well, maybe 500 times is an exaggeration, but it's going to feel that way. And it's going to be tremendously destructive. Something like we probably haven't seen before. As far as hurricanes hitting Florida is concerned, we'll be speaking with um, Global News Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell. He'll join us from Daytona Beach later on this hour. And uh, I have a lot, a lot of admiration for Anthony, who um, is going to be there as this thing roars in. Dr. Anand Nanadesikan is uh, on our schedule as well this hour. Professor of Earth and Planetary Sciences at John Hopkins University. Climate scientist who says global warming will see a reduction in the numbers of hurricanes, but that their strength is going to be much greater. And next hour, Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, who is one of the world's premier environmentalists, and um, Time magazine described him as one of the most, uh, one of the 100 most influential people in the world. He's the head of the Copenhagen Consensus Center. He'll join us from Prague, and uh, he's challenging a lot of things that are said about global warming, and he has said that... Um, what uh, I'm trying to find here, Stephen Hawking claims the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Treaty, quote, could push the Earth over the brink to become like Venus with a temperature of 250 degrees Celsius. Dr. Lomborg says Stephen Hawking is, quote, just silly, end quote. So I'll have all of that for you coming up in the next hour and a half. John Cassidy, Dr. John Cassidy is with me now, research scientist. He's an international earthquake expert with the Geological Survey of Canada. He joins us from British Columbia. And I called Dr. Cassidy because of the earthquake that happened in Mexico. And of course, this country has some very significant earthquake zones, particularly in the, uh, in the West. British Columbia is part of that Cascadia area. And John, thank you very much for the time. It's, it's always good to talk to you. And it's always, I always get to get a sense of reassurance from you that we may be better off than we think we are when it comes to the kind of damage that earthquakes can do? Well, yeah, things are, are, are improving, uh, Roy, and, and thank you for this opportunity. Um, we, we are we're learning from all of these um, earthquakes around the world. We're learning from the small earthquakes that we record across Canada every day. And, uh, and that's important to study these, especially the large earthquakes, um, like the one in Mexico or Japan or Chile, and um, learn as much as we can from those, and apply though that information to to our to our building codes. And that's that's um, the science that we're doing is improving our building codes so that we can be better prepared for large earthquakes that uh, that we know will occur in the future. Eight point one is huge, isn't it? It is huge. It is huge. <laughs> this was the largest earthquake recorded this year. Typically, only a few of these are recorded each uh, each year. If an, if an 8.1 earthquake were to hit an unprepared urban area, how much damage would it do? Uh, well, it, it, the, the uh, magnitude 8.1 impacts a huge area, so that's one of, the, one of the factors. We're talking about an area of very strong shaking that extends over a, a few hundred kilometers and, and really depends on, on the location. So this earthquake is only slightly larger than the 1985 earthquake that hit off of Mexico, uh, but the earthquake just a few days ago was in a much more remote area of, of, of southern Mexico, and it was offshore. Mm -hmm. So that little bit of um, extra distance really makes a difference in terms of uh, ground shaking and, and the impacts, ultimately the impacts. Of these so if, they, if this, if this 8.1 earthquake had happened, if the epicenter had been an under an unprepared urban area, the damage yeah. would have been colossal. Uh, yes, that's, it's very, very strong shaking, and the closer you are to that shaking, uh, the, the, the stronger it is. So this earthquake was in a, a more remote area, and that's mm -hmm. why we're seeing a little bit less damage, but still very, very strong shaking all along those coastal communities. When you and I spoke yesterday, yeah. you said that there was, um, there was this, this earthquake in, in Mexico was important to Canada. Uh, it took place in a subduction zone, and it didn't do what earthquakes are supposed to do, if I understand correctly, and that could have, um, I don't want to use the word impact, but that could have, in a very loose sense, an impact on what may happen uh, at some point in the Cascadia zone. 
yeah, that's that's right. So uh, both um, where this earthquake occurred in Mexico, this is a subduction zone. An ocean plate is moving towards Mexico and pushing beneath uh, beneath the country. We have exactly the same situation off of Vancouver Island and southwestern British Columbia, where an ocean plate is moving towards us at about the same speed that your fingernails grow. Um, that ocean plate is is beneath Victoria, Vancouver, and uh, and we have different types of earthquakes. We have these big offshore subduction earthquakes that we know have been um, up in the magnitude 9 range in the past. We have earthquakes close to the surface, and then we have these deep earthquakes within the ocean plate, like the one in Mexico that we saw a few days ago. Um, the difference here is that the, the earthquake in Mexico was much, much larger than these, um, the same type of earthquake that we see uh, in our region. Uh, so so that's, uh, that's unusual, and that's um, something that we want to look at and, uh, and, and learn from is, is the size of that earthquake, the location of that earthquake, and, and the aftershock so that we can um, better understand what to expect here in British Columbia. Is there a quake that would bear some similarity? If, you, if, you, if you're looking for a point of reference and you were to look at what's happening or what has happened in British Columbia or Washington State or Oregon or down the coast, is there uh, something that's happened, an earthquake in, 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 our, in this area, in that area, that has happened uh, in the last, I don't know, 50 years that would bear some some resemblance to what happened in Mexico? Yeah, a, a few. The, um, smaller, though. So um, we had in 2001 a magnitude 6.8 earthquake near near Seattle, and it was also one of these deep earthquakes like the one in, in Mexico, so a very similar type of earthquake, but much, much smaller. It was beneath um, the, the Seattle region. It caused about $2 billion in damage. And, uh, and um, we've had other large magnitude 7, 7.3 earthquakes here on Vancouver Island, um, the last one being in 1946. And in terms of the larger ones, Haida Gwaii, uh, just about five years ago, we had a magnitude 7.8 earthquake, which is close to the size of this one in Mexico, but a, a little bit smaller still. Mm-hmm. Are we doing any better being able to predict when earthquakes happen? I know people have said, for example, if your dog starts to run uphill, I've heard some insane things, and I never know what to believe and what not to believe, but on a scientific basis, I know what I should believe and what I shouldn't believe, John. Well, but. Yeah, it's, it's a good question, and we're certainly making a lot of um, advances in understanding where earthquakes are more likely to occur, how large and how often, and how the ground will shake. So that that's the... The, the fundamental science that goes into our building codes and bridge codes. Right. And those are improving uh, largely because of, of, of studying recent earthquakes with better data, more modern data, different types of data. So, so we're making huge advances in, in our understanding of, of um, earthquake hazards. Right. Uh, we're also making a lot of advances in, in um, earthquake early warning which simply takes advantage of the fact, and this worked in Mexico during the most recent earthquake, uh, that the, the damaging waves travel at about three or, or four kilometers each second. So the farther away an earthquake is from you, potentially the more warning time. And Mexico City had uh, nearly two minutes of warning before the strong shaking uh, came into that, um, uh, into that city. By so, measuring the, the tsunami? Uh, by measuring the, the seismic waves from seismic the waves, but yeah, there was so a tsunami involved. And usually, there's or if there's a large earthquake and it's below the ocean, there's generally a tsunami uh, involved too. Is there right? Not? And and this was a large earthquake and and also beneath the ocean, but it was a um, relatively deep earthquake at about seventy kilometers, mm-hmm. and because it was within the ocean plate, and not on the on the fault between it, it didn't it wasn't a slipping of that ocean plate like the big subduction earthquakes, but it was actually within the ocean plate. So because of the type of earthquake uh, we were dealing with here, this, the, there was not much of a tsunami generated. There, there was. It was less than a meter, um, but certainly not like the big tsunamis that you often... So kind of an okay beginner surfing wave. Uh, a fairly small wave, yeah, but but you know any any tsunami is um, yeah. No, I'm trying trying to look for a little humor in, yeah. the, in the in the dark uh, side. But but you know for prediction that's a much tougher um, uh, question, and and there is no at this point there's no um, way of predicting exactly when, where, and how large an earthquake right. will be. But but you're right that you know there are a lot of observations out there that uh, sometimes work and sometimes don't. John, just before we take a break, what other areas of Canada? 
are particularly prone to earthquakes. What other earthquake zones are significant in this country? And I'm talking about areas where you would where you'd also find urban centers. Right. So the the west coast, of course, where the active plate boundaries are. So all along the coast of British Columbia, uh, through um, through the Yukon Territory. But the other big one, uh, and with big population centers, is um, the Ottawa Valley, um, St. Lawrence Corridor, and also along the Atlantic margin, so off the coast of Newfoundland, uh, Nova Scotia, and through the Arctic. So quite a bit of Canada, and um, and in eastern Canada, uh, the 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 big earthquakes don't happen as often, but um, but even magnitude six or six and a half earthquakes, the waves travel very effectively through the hard rock of eastern Canada. So mm-hmm. they, they can travel a much greater distance and be felt to a much greater distance and then cause damage uh, compared to an earthquake in western North America. Got to take a quick break, but no one who has experienced an earthquake, no one who's felt the ground move without having stopped off at a few imbibing locations on the way home uh, is ever going to forget that feeling when the ground begins to involuntarily move between below your feet and the stuff around you starts to move. Um, in my early 20s in Montreal, I was about 3 o'clock in the morning. I was fast asleep. And my bookcase, a huge bookcase, only a large piece of furniture I owned at the time, crashed to the floor. And, the f- and I'll never forget this. The first thought of, uh, that popped into my mind was earthquake. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. John Cassidy with me, research scientist as far as earthquakes are concerned, international earthquake expert with the Geological Survey of Canada. John, we were talking about preparedness and uh, and looking again particularly at the Cascadia region in the northwest of North America, Vancouver, and, uh, and all of British Columbia, Vancouver Island, British Columbia involved there. What kind of appropriate preparations have taken place? What's happening as far as making buildings safe uh, from the kind of earthquake that's st- or safe as possible from the kind of earthquake that struck Mexico the other night at 8.1. Right. So there's a lot of work underway from uh, improving building codes so that uh, as new structures are designed, they are uh, designed for the, with the latest information. Uh, there's also a lot of retrofitting taking place, which is uh, old bridges, old schools, um, old buildings in, in um, parts of the city that are being strengthened to withstand the type of shaking. Uh, we have emergency organizations uh, across the province and communities uh, planning and, and, again, using the latest information from big earthquakes around the world to, um, to prepare for future earthquakes in this region. And, and then things like shakeout, where you know, the entire province uh, every year uh, rehearses a dress rehearsal for an earthquake. And, um, practices uh, the response to an earthquake. So, and, and schools where schools are being retrofit and, and school drills are now a part of part of life here in British Columbia. So n- none of that was happening 20 or, or 30 years ago. So there's uh, there have been remarkable advances, and, and there's still a lot to do. But um, but things are getting much much better. So BC is also in one of those subduction zones, correct? It is. That's exactly like right. like like the one that uh, under the ocean in near Mexico. Just like Mexico. Okay. Just like Chile. I watched something on television a few months ago, and I mentioned it to you yesterday, and it was a a special on buildings that were being prepared for a potential earthquake. And I think it was Los Angeles City Hall. They, with computer imaging, deconstructed the building. But they showed the shell, the steel shell of the building, and underneath all four corners were massive shock absorbers. I had no idea that kind of thing existed. Like the shock absorber you have in your car or your truck, just a little bigger. Yeah, exactly. So there have been uh, huge advances in earthquake engineering where buildings can be built on rollers or shock absorbers or anything that will uh, help to absorb the energy from, from the ground shaking. And during these very large earthquakes, the, the ground is moving. Um, it's, uh, the shaking can be stronger than gravity, so items are being thrown around. It's very, very strong shaking. What's the and worst one you've seen? Um, the, well, I've, I was in uh, Chile after the 8.8 earthquake. I experienced a magnitude 7 aftershock there. Uh, here in Victoria, I've, I've experienced um, up to about a magnitude 6.8, uh, the one near Seattle about 15 years ago. Um, so not, you know, not because of the distances involved, not really strong shaking, but very frightening still. And, and in Chile, after the 8.8 earthquake, 
the constant aftershocks were were extremely. Um, uh, it was very frightening to be right. feeling constant aftershocks. And there's no connection between earthquakes and the hurricanes, right? No, that's right. I know. So people are afraid of those sorts of things, and it's probably better to dispel the fear and dispel any myths that have been. Uh, put out there, there's no connection between the two, but it does seem like Mother Nature's a little angry these days. Uh, there, there's uh, <laughs> a lot a lot going on, sadly. It's always great to talk to you, John. Thank you so much for the time and Thank giving us your weekend. Thank you, Roy. Dr. John Cassidy, research scientist, international earthquake expert with the Geological Survey of Canada, 8.1 on the Richter scale in Mexico. Huge, huge earthquake. Just very fortunate that it wasn't in a populated area. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Anthony Farnell joins us, Global News Chief Meteorologist on The Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network. Anthony, thank you for taking the time, and, and how's the weather changing in Florida now? Well, I mean, we've been changing more than the weather. We actually started uh, the morning in Daytona Beach on the east side, the Atlantic Ocean, and since then we've moved, we've set up shop here in Tampa on the Gulf of Mexico side, because the storm has actually changed tracks, and now it's moving a little bit further west, which means a big storm surge to uh, an entire coastline and new evacuations. And uh, we're still seeing some sun outside in Tampa right now. The winds are starting to pick up, but the worst of the storm here won't arrive until Sunday night or early Monday morning. Now, is that storm, and I can hear some uh, some some background noise. It sounds like there's some wind activity going on where you are. Is the storm going to touch all of Florida, or will some of Florida escape? Well, it's actually going to touch all of Florida. Some areas obviously will be spared the worst of the uh, hurricane-force winds, which should be Category 4, high-end Category 4 strength by the time it does make landfall. It has weakened today, this storm but it is going to pick up some steam over the Florida Strait, and as it goes over the Florida Keys, it will be back to a Category 4. So that's what they're planning for. That's uh, what the storm surge models are all predicting, and uh, we've seen just evacuations everywhere, and even the places that aren't getting a direct hit are still going to see hurricane force gusts, and if you live by the water, you're likely evacuated right now, no matter what coast you're on. If you're living by the water and you're not evacuated, I've heard some emergency officials say, then you're going to die. Yeah, and that especially goes for the Florida Keys. They started their evacuations at the beginning of the week, and the reason for that, they knew this storm was coming. The Keys are so low, they're just a few feet above sea level, so they're expecting a few of them for the storm surge to wash right over. And, of course, there's only that one way out, the road, that heads uh, back up towards Miami, and that's why they had to evacuate first. And we've just been talking to people that have had to evacuate not once, not twice, sometimes three times as the storm slowly changes tracks. And, that has to be just frustrating for people, and some of them have pets and all their belongings with them, and they're just told to head north. There are no hotels available anywhere. They're just told head north, head to Atlanta, and uh, that's where this mass migration is going. Wow, 5.6 million people, uh, maybe more now, and there, this whole exodus from the state of Florida. Uh, is the direction of the of, of Irma firm now, Anthony? Uh, you moved across the state earlier today, or is it, could it still vacillate some? Well, it, it's firm. The, there's always a bit of uh, concern about the intensity forecast because those there's a little bit less known. Models can sometimes underestimate or overestimate intensification. We're pretty sure that as it moves away from Cuba now and towards Florida, it will pick up some steam. The water's exceptionally warm. There's not a lot of uh, wind shear, which would knock down this uh, storm. So we're expecting a, a massive system. In fact, it stretches from one side to the other, almost 600 kilometers across. And wow. That's, I guess, another reason why uh, there's going to be nobody that, that spared the effects. And But the exact path right now doesn't matter that much because of how big this storm is, and that's why everybody has to take note. And here in Tampa, they're expecting now up to an eight-foot storm surge, which uh, I'm looking at the convention center on one side, and a hospital that's already been evacuated on the other. Both of those locations are likely to be underwater tomorrow night. Good Lord. Uh, why two huge hurricanes in such rapid succession? Harvey in Houston, Irma in Florida, after devastating the Caribbean islands. What was it about 2017 that changed things over previous years, the last few years? Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is, this is actually pretty typical that you get these years that have numerous historic storms. Some of them you're never going to hear another 
uh, name Harvey again because that storm, the name gets retired when it uh, causes so much damage or kills a certain amount of people. You're not going to hear the name Irma as well. But this reminds me, it's been a while, of course, but it reminds me back to 2005 when we had that year with Katrina and Rita and Wilma and all these names and all these storms in succession. And it's just the pattern, the overall global pattern that some years shifts to the Atlantic where there's just these impulses, these big pulses of storms that occur all at once. And that's what we had this year. And it's still ongoing. There's still Jose out there. Katia made landfall. And there could be another one behind Jose. So it's going to be an active month. And really just for the U.S., it's just unfortunate that two of these massive storms have made landfall. Anthony, is Irma a a rain event or a a wind event? I mean, there's got to be plenty of of each, I'm sure. But is it a rain or, or wind event mostly? It is mostly a wind event. The big difference, everybody wants to compare this to Harvey, obviously, because it's the most recent uh, memorable storm, and it's a very different beast altogether. It's much bigger, so there's more wind, and that also means there's more water, more storm surge to go with it. And I think that is something that really has officials concerned and the main reason for this mass evacuation, because people can can hunker down, they can sustain Category 4 force winds, but when you have a, in some cases, 15-foot storm surge, that goes over your rooftop, and it almost acts like a tsunami, taking out everything in its path. And that is the big fear as the center tracks to the north and basically goes right up the west coast of, of Florida. Those wind gusts, yes, power outages, all of that, rain, risk of tornadoes, but it's that storm surge that is the most uh, troubling uh, over the next couple of days. I'm speaking with Anthony Farnell, Global News Chief Meteorologist, who is... Uh you're, you're in the Tampa area now, right? That's what you said. That's right, yep. How safe are you and Mike Armstrong? Well, Mike Armstrong, he was supposed to be ground zero, which was the Miami area. And as I mentioned, a lot of people exited Miami early in the week and headed to Tampa, headed to Fort Myers and Naples, visiting family, staying in hotels. And now they're again being asked to leave. So we are safe. Mike Armstrong is safe. We, we pick hotels based on their sturdiness, based on their their distance away from the bay, the water, the ocean. And, uh, of course, we want to be up a few levels as well, just in case it's a bit worse than expected and we deal with this storm surge. But we have supplies. We have a a huge SUV that uh, is carrying all of our equipment and gear, and we have enough water to get through several days. And hopefully when when the storm passes, we can not just report on it, but maybe help some people that that are in need in the area. Oh, that'd be great. Uh, many of us who are old enough to remember can still drop visual images of Andrew. I think nineteen was it nineteen ninety two, Hurricane yep, Andrew. That's right, nineteen ninety two. Yep. There were thirteen million people in Florida then. There's some twenty one million plus in the state now. So just that population increase, which is a huge population increase over a short period of time, that would also add to the complication of what's going on, in particularly when the storm hits. Yeah, oh, for sure. And uh, I mean, yes and no is kind of my answer to that one. As far as a six-odd million migration goes, this has been so orderly, so organized, and that's something Florida does very well because Florida sticks out almost like a a sore thumb in the middle of uh, the Atlantic and, of course, the Gulf of Mexico. So they're used to dealing with storms. And some of the residents we've talked to, they're going through their 10th or 15th hurricane, and they know evacuation routes, and everybody is designated either zone A, zone B, zone C, and they know when it's their time to leave, they pick up their stuff and get out of here. They have their emergency kits, and they generally have a, a plan where to go. If this storm were to hit another area of the country or perhaps uh, somewhere in Canada, I don't think we would be nearly as, as well organized and orderly in, in exiting our, our homes that we, we grew up in. Yeah, yeah. How long is uh, Irma going to linger over Florida? Well, as I mentioned, it's going to keep moving, so that is the good news. Uh, we're expecting here in Tampa hurricane-force winds for somewhere between six and eight hours, which, uh, I mean, it's, it's a fast-moving system, but that's still a lot of time. And the longer these storms linger over you, of course, the damage gets compounded, especially as the winds come from one direction and then the other after the eye passes. So we're expecting it to take about 36 hours for this center of the storm to pass over the entire state of Florida. And then by Monday afternoon, it's affecting Georgia, the Carolinas, where there are evacuations uh, ongoing in Charleston, all the way towards Savannah. So it's not just the state of Florida, but really the brunt of the damage is expected uh, here. 
Anthony, thank you for the time today, and we'll be talking to you tomorrow at this time, and I suspect things will have changed already considerably by the time from we, we talk to you tomorrow. Yeah, I believe I'll need to go somewhere secure, so I'll actually be able to hear you. The winds are expected to pick up tomorrow morning, and then the hurricane force gusts will be after we talk, late in the afternoon tomorrow. So I'll talk to you then. Good talking to you, Anthony. Anthony Farnell is the chief meteorologist for Global National News. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, some climate scientists are saying that global warming is going to see the reduction in the numbers of hurricanes, but their strengths will be significantly greater. We're certainly seeing a tremendous amount of strength in the in the hurricane that is approaching Florida, as Anthony Farnell just told us. Dr. Anan Nanadesikan joins me from uh, Johns Hopkins University. He's a professor of earth and planetary sciences. Thanks for taking the time, doctor. Is, uh, is the intensity of Irma uh, a result of global warming? Is that what the models suggest? Um, it's actually a very difficult thing to say, and I'm not doing that to be mealy-mouthed. Um, it's simply that when you get a hurricane, it's the sum of many, many different things acting together. You need warm water, you need low shear, you need um, particular temperature conditions in the atmosphere. Does global warming contribute to that? Almost certainly it does. It's much harder to say how much. And, and you, uh, you're you not a hurricane expert, you're a global warming expert. That's right. I, I've spent my career, in fact, much of the last 30 years working on these climate models that are used to project uh, warming forward into the future. And trying to understand how the models work, how to make them more realistic, um, how to make them more representative of the processes that are in the real world. Did your modeling suggest that what is happening this year was in fact going to happen? The last time there was a, a major hurricane strike, or any hurricane strike on the United States was 12 years ago. Right. So what the, the kinds of models that I've um, looked at tend to look at the average conditions. Right, so we, um, it's sort of similar to saying, if, to, to thinking about the economy as a whole. Right, if you, you, can, you can predict that 20, 30 years from now, the stock market is likely to be higher than today. You're not going to be able to predict the time of the next stock market crash. So what I can do is, is basically talk about the probabilities that you will have a stronger hurricane on average, season on average, but I can't really predict more than a couple of years ahead, or actually more than a year ahead. Um, we, we really don't have much skill when it comes to that as a field, and that's because from year to year, there are things like El Nino that change hurricane activity, um, just as things like the North Atlantic um, Oscillation or Pacific Decadal Oscillation change the climate of, of northwestern Canada. So if you look ahead uh, to next year, what do, you, what do your models suggest? So the models that I, again, the models that I run um, are, are long-term. The, the understanding that we have right now is at, at, at this point, for the rest of the hurricane season, it does appear like a La Nina is developing, and there are some theories that suggest that that should give us a stronger hurricane season this year. When it comes to next year, I don't think at this point we have much skill in saying, is it going to be greater than normal, less than normal? Um, we do seem to be in the middle of a period of enhanced hurricane activity associated with warmer. So how accurate should we, and how accurate do you believe the modeling is? And I, I ask you from, just from the perspective of someone who listens to a weather forecast mm -hmm. that is three or four days down the road or a week down the road. Right. And quite often, it's nowhere, and I don't want to really, I don't want to impugn the people who provide the weather forecast, but more frequently than I'd like, particularly mm -hmm. if I'm playing golf, <laughs> the weather forecast has absolutely nothing to do with the actual weather that's falling on my head. Right, and the, 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 uh, the answer I'd give you is that you probably make climate forecasts all the time, right? Um, at, in about a, a couple of weeks, you're probably going to take your winter coat out of the closet. Yes. That's a climate forecast. Right. Now, why can you do that? You can do that because the, the uh, sun is going to be lower in the sky, there's going to be less sunlight hitting the ground, and it's going to get colder. And that happens every year, and, and because that happens every year, we're used to making that climate forecast. Mm 
Okay. The kinds of forecasts that we make for long-term climate change are in some ways fairly similar. There's for When we talk about the average climate over 30 years, we're saying we're putting a heat-trapping gas in the atmosphere, so it's going to get hotter on average. And so the skill that we have comes from that same kind of changing the radiation balance of the planet. Um, so it's a much stronger constraint than the weather down the road, which is affected, as you say, by some, some small, um, can be affected by small perturbations, the fact that we can't measure the atmosphere accurately enough to predict out small changes. I have about 30 seconds left, so it's not possible at this time to predict more than, uh, looking at the modeling, mm-hmm. more than a year down the road. And so there's no way to say 12 years from now there'll be two or three hurricanes and it'll be worse than Irma. Um, that's right. That's All right. right. I hope you'll come back, Dr. Nanadesikin. I appreciate the time. Thank you very thank much. You. Well, thank you very much. From uh, Johns Hopkins University, there's Dr. Anand Nanadesikin on the uh, climate modeling. I, I would have thought that it would be possible to do more than a, you know, looking down the next 12 months for the, uh, for the uh, forecasting for hurricanes, but I appreciate his time. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg is frequently uh, asked for on this program by listeners. They, I received uh, quite a few emails since the uh, hurricane issue began and uh, folks saying, why don't you get Dr. Lomborg back on the show? It, it's easy to ask. He's a very busy man. Uh, we're going to talk to Lom- Dr. Lomborg now about how governments should spend their money smarter and uh, get an increase in return on investment in health and air pollution and infrastructure and, and climate. Dr. Stephen Hawking claims the U.S. withdrawal from the Paris Climate Treaty, quote, could push the Earth over the brink to become like Venus with a temperature of 250 degrees Celsius. Dr. Lomborg is an environmentalist, Time Magazine's list of 100 most influential people in the world. He's the head of the Copenhagen Consensus Center Think Tank, the author of How Much Have Global Problems Cost the World, Cool It, which is also a great film, and How to Spend $75 Billion to Make the World a Better Place. Dr. Lomborg, it's good to have you back on the show. Roy, it's great to be back. And the pause is Dr. Lomborg's in Prague. I'm in Hamilton, Ontario, and that's what happens. Uh, first question out of the gate, when we just talked with a with a uh, climate scientist about this, I'd like your thoughts on it. We have Harvey in Houston. We have uh, Irma attacking uh, Florida after having devastated some Caribbean islands. Are these storms, are, are, are record-breaking storms going to be the new normal? Some people are saying there'll be fewer storms, but they'll be more intense because of global warming. What do you say? Well, uh, it's probably true, that, and, and that's certainly what our models show us, that w- there'll be probably fewer and probably stronger hurricanes. But this is not what we can see right now. Uh, actually, over the last 150 years, we've seen a decline in major landfalling uh, U.S. hurricanes, and that's also true for uh, any other number of them, uh, four and five, category four and five, or two, three, four, five, or even all of the hurricanes. So this is certainly not what we've seen so far. And again, remember, when people are saying, oh, you know, global warming is causing Irma and, and Harvey, you also have to then say that global warming cost the last 12 years of no major hurricane landfalling in the U.S. You can't have one or the other. And so this is really a question of, of short memory. There will probably be an impact in the long run, but this is not what we're seeing now. It makes me think of, uh, of, of Al Gore. Now, just looking at something that you wrote in uh, Lomborg.com, promoting his climate change film, an inconvenient sequel, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore likes to say, but the nightly news has become a nature hike through the Book of Revelations. And you write, he's not the only one touting an apocalypse. In a much-shared story, New York Magazine warned that famine, economic collapse, and a sun that cooks us will happen as soon as the end of this century, as parts of the earth will likely become uninhabitable and other parts horrifically inhospitable. Then you have Stephen Hawking saying, and I, again, I, I got this from your site, that global warming could push the Earth over the brink to become like Venus with a temperature of 250 degrees Celsius. 
Are they smoking something, or do they have something? <laughs> well, it's certainly way over the top. The reality is that global warming is a problem. It is also something we should fix, but we need to get a set to proportion. And certainly when we're talking just about hurricanes, this is not the major reason why we should do something about global warming. If you want to do something about hurricanes, there are much, much simpler things like making sure you have better infrastructure, you have better uh, zoning, you have better building codes, uh, you don't subsidize uh, people to build irresponsibly. There are very simple things to do. But when you're talking about these more general arguments, you know, the, the earth is, is, is coming over the brink and we'll see you know, the end and, and we won't be able to live anywhere, that's just simply ridiculous. That's not what the UN climate panel, the IPCC tells us. They actually tell us that we will see a cost of global warming uh, towards the 2070s of somewhere between 0.2 and 2% of GDP. Now, that's a problem, but it's by no means the end of the world. And they actually also say one other thing. They say, when you compare this to most other issues in the world, it will actually be a fairly small part of the impact. And that's, that's worth you know, just realizing the UN climate panel tells us that this is by no means the most important issue that the world is going to be faced with. Well, let's talk about the world's most important issues and how governments should, in fact, be spending their money so that there's a return on money and so that people of the world actually benefit from that particular spending. When you and I spoke immediately prior to the Paris Conference on Climate and immediately following the Conference on Climate, you spoke about the uh, the appropriate investment of, uh, of trillions of dollars and how the Paris Accord was not going to accomplish what the what the news releases and the promotional material said it would. Yeah, I mean, look, the Paris Climate Accord, everybody believes that it's going to you know, make, make sure that we will reduce temperatures to two degrees or maybe even one and a half, which was what they were dangling in front of us. Just to give you a sense of how unrealistic that is, if we wanted to cut temperatures to just 1.5 degrees, we'd have to stop civilization in four years we'd have to stop using fossil fuels anywhere on the planet. Remember, that would make half of the world's population starve, but it would also basically stop everything you like. What it will actually achieve is about 1% of the two-degree target. So it will achieve 1% of what they're promising, and yet the cost, as you just mentioned, will be phenomenal. This is why I think we need to start asking why are we spending this much money on doing this little good when there's clearly so many other challenges out there that also deserve our attention? Very clearly, you know, the tuberculosis, just to take one thing, simple disease that we know how to fix. It's the world's biggest infectious killer. It kills 1.6 million people each year, and we know how to deal with it for about $8 billion a year we could save almost everyone, not everyone, but almost everyone from tuberculosis. Why is it we don't fix that, but we still spend $20, $30 billion on climate aid to third world countries, which they very clearly tell us is not their first priority. And and as you've said, uh, Dr. Lomborg, what uh, children in third, third world countries need is not solar panels. They need antibiotics. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there was a, a big uh, UN survey that actually asked almost 10 million people across the world, what do you want to prioritize? And not very surprisingly, they told us that the top priorities were to get better education, health, and food. Those are the most important issues for most people around the world. And of the 16 options they got from the UN, they put climate at the very bottom as number 16. Again, this doesn't mean, you know, we're, we're an advanced civilization. We can walk and chew gum. We can also do number 16. But when you talk to most people in the rich world, when you talk to most political leaders, you almost get the sense that climate change is the most important issue, whereas, of course, for most people around the world, it's the least important of the very, very simple things that we could do and also the ones that would be much cheaper and help people much, much more. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Lomborg, looking at his site, argues in The Australian 
The climate scares have a real cost. They encourage us to engage in phenomenally expensive and unhelpful climate policies while ignoring the smaller, cheaper, and much more realistic ways to respond to both this climate and challenges that are much more pressing. Dr. Lomborg, governments, as you write, spend billions and billions of dollars in uh, trying or at least promising to improve health and education and infrastructure. How far are they missing the mark and what do they need to do? <laughs> that, that's a very hard question to answer straight up because that would actually require us to do analysis across all these different areas. But what we try to do, we work with more than three of the world's top economists and seven Nobel laureates in economics to assess where can you do more good so we work, for instance, in Bangladesh, a huge country, 160 million people, uh, and talking about where can you spend more money and do really a lot of good for every tax dollar spent. That's both Canadian aid dollars, but mostly actually what Bangladeshis themselves are going to be spending. And what we found was that there were some incredibly good policies and there are some pretty darn bad policies. And of course, then our point is to say, look, let's try to focus on the really smart ones. Just to give you one example, lots of corruption in uh, procurement. Uh, this sounds incredibly boring, but procurement makes up about half of all government spending in the third world. And if you could make it slightly less corrupt, you could actually get much, much more value for your money. We found a way to do that is simply making it digital. So you can bid online. It makes it a little harder to screw over uh, the taxpayers. And we estimate that you could save about $700 million every year in Bangladesh. The point here is these are simple, smart policies. The Bangladeshis are now actually implementing this, and it will generate a lot of good. Compare this to climate policies and what we just talked about before uh, when we talk about you know, Hurricane uh, Irma. It's much, much more sexy to talk about Irma than it is to talk about procurement in Bangladesh. However, if you actually want to help, it's much, much more effective to focus on the cheap and incredibly effective policies. You also uh, initiated a study on Canada's relationship and support of Haiti, the people of Haiti and the country of Haiti. And, uh, and, and talk to us about that, please. Yes. So, so again, we actually did this project for the Canadian Development Agency exactly because since the earthquake back in 2010, the terrible earthquake, uh, Canada has spent almost a billion dollars in Haiti. And yet the feeling is that they haven't gotten as much back as they would like to. It's hard to tell exactly how much have gotten better. So we work with a lot of people in Haiti to look at where can you spend extra dollars from Canada or, and also gourds from that's the national currency in Haiti. So where can you actually do a lot more good? One of the things we found was that if you get more micronutrients to, uh, into wheat, it's a very simple way of essentially getting a vitamin pill out to everyone. That could save about 150 lives each year, mostly uh, kids that are being born, and it would save about 250,000 to a quarter million people uh, from being anemic. The cost would be $5 million over the next 10 years. So it's a very cheap pro project, which would do a lot of good. The Haitian president loved this because we could show analysis that this was one of the very best and most effective things you could do. Canada loved it. USAID is on board. And this is now happening again. So it's about focusing on the boring, but again, incredibly impactful policies. On an overall basis, are we making progress or are we slipping back? Are we being led by leaders or are we being led around by the opportunistic and the basically, I hate to say this, but no, I don't, uninformed? I think you asked two different questions. Uh, we're often led by people who are not necessarily focused on the best, uh, on our best interests. But actually, overall, the world is dramatically on a great trajectory. Remember, just 30 years ago, the world had about 25% of the inhabitants were poor. That is below $1, as it was in 1985, now it's $1.90. So we had about 25% were poor. Today, that number is, that proportion is less than 10%. Over the last 200 years, we've seen a dramatic drop from more than 90% of the world being poor, 
to less than 10% being poor. We see that in, in health. We see that we, we live about twice as long as we did in 1900. We have much more calories. We actually have lower air pollution, uh, believe it or not. Yes, we have bigger outdoor air pollution, but we have much less indoor air pollution, which is much more uh, dangerous. And so if you look across the world on most of the important indicators, we see that the world is dramatically improving. This is mostly because we're technologically smart and we develop things that actually help everyone. The point, for me at least, is to make sure that policies help us do even more good rather than ending up focusing on the things like uh, Irma saying, should we cut a ton of CO2, which will help almost nothing for future victims of hurricanes, but which will cost quite a bit. Or should we focus on the simple, cheap things like infrastructure? One uh, last question for you. So we're making progress globally. Things are improving. And yet we manage to be at each other's throats. And uh, it's a very wobbly world now. What do you, what's your thinking on that? I've heard people say this is the most dangerous the world has been in, in many a decade. It, it's true in some way. That there's, there's some things we should be very concerned about. Uh, so obviously nuclear war, uh, uh, the, the whole idea of what will have would happen with biological warfare, those kinds of things. I think there are some things that we should be much, much more concerned about. Also, remember, we had a great pandemic back in uh, 1918, uh, killed about 60 million people. Uh, we seem to be woefully underprepared uh, for those kinds of problems. But fundamentally, again, remember that the world was much, much more dangerous just 50 years ago, many, many more people died from war, uh, pestilence, pretty much everything you want to look at than do today. So, yes, we should definitely be focused on some of these issues, and I think we're under-focusing on them exactly because we're focused instead on, for instance, the global warming threat from Irma. While it's a real threat, we're dramatically exaggerating it. Dr. Lomborg, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you. Dr. Bjorn Lomborg, environmentalist. Uh, His books include How Much Have Global Problems Cost the World? Cool It! and How to Spend $75 billion to Make the World a Better Place. Go to Lomborg.com. L-O-M-B-O-R-G dot com. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.